please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 21. John 21. Remember that we read the entire chapter last week. This week I will begin just at that portion of the second half of the chapter in verse 15, but will remind you of what has gone before, before because it still constitutes something of the theme of our preaching today. After the Lord had risen from the dead and had appeared at least twice to the apostles, They had not seen him apparently in a few days, and so Simon Peter decided to go fishing again, his ordinary employment from which he had left, uh, which he had left in order to follow Christ earlier. But for various reasons, partly no doubt because of his own thinking that he no longer is going to qualify for the apostleship because of his denial of Christ three times at the arrest just before Christ's crucifixion, perhaps because he's growing bored and disheartened from the failure to see the Lord frequently in his post-resurrection appearances, or some other reason, he decides to go fishing. And the several other men among the apostles decide to go with him. And you remember that they toiled all night and caught nothing, these professional fishermen. And as it began to dawn toward the day, They saw Jesus standing on the beach but didn't recognize him. And he had a coal of fires gathered there and uh, some little fish and a loaf of bread for breakfast. And then he told them to cast their net on the right side of the boat and promised that if they would, they would catch plenty. They did, and he was right. There were 153 great fish so heavy that they couldn't get the net into the boat, and yet the net wasn't broken. And then they come to the shore, Peter jumping into the water first, and either swimming and or wading his way ahead of the others who got into the smaller boat, rowed it to shore. They met the Lord, and he invites them to come and have breakfast. And then we come to verse 15. So when they had broken their fast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And again, we believe that the best understanding of this phrase, more than these, is do you love me more than these other men love me? We don't believe that there's indication that somehow Peter loved fishing more than Jesus. He has demonstrated for several years that that's not the case. But we do remember his saying, though all others forsake you, I'll not. And comparing himself to others' devotion uh, in a superior fashion. And so here's the Lord three times repeating, Do you love me more than these love me? And he says to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And in his response he uses a different word 
from the word the Lord used when he said, Do you uh, love me with that uh, principled, deep, and abiding love, agape? And he answers, Lord, you know that I, with that warm and affectionate brotherly kindness, have deep affection for you. You know I fellow you. And he says to him, Feed my lambs. He says to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He says to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I have warm affection and a brotherly sort for you. He says to him, Tend or shepherd my sheep. He says to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you and he uses the word Peter's been using, do you have, really, even warm brotherly affection for me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you have this warm brotherly affection for me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you the way a brother loves a brother. Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say to you, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked where you would. But when you shall be old, you shall stretch forth your hands, and another shall gird you and carry you where you would not. Now this he spoke, signifying by what manner of death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he says to him, Follow me. Peter, turning about, sees the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also leaned back on his breast at the supper, who we are convinced is the Apostle John, and said, Lord, who is he that betrays you? Peter, therefore, seeing him, says to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus says to him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This saying, therefore, went forth among the brethren that that disciple shouldn't die. Yet Jesus said not unto him that he should not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple that bears witness of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself should not contain the books that should be written. Please again join me as we bow together and seek the help of God in prayer. Our Father, our opponent, would have us not understand or receive your word. But we have your promises and your spirit so that we may ask in Jesus' name and you will give to us our request that we have grace to hear and receive your word. Break down and defeat the purposes of the devil in this place. And in our own hearts, O Lord, keep us from wandering thoughts, from sinful self-centeredness from vanity and an insensitive and dull ear and heart. Fill us with a righteous hearing 
And in mercy, O our God and Savior, come now and exalt yourself in power and in grace. Help the preacher and the hearer. Give much help from heaven. Give liberty and boldness and clarity of speech. And the result, we pray, will be the saving of those who do not walk according to your commandments and the edifying of those who do. Hear us, our Father, in the name of our Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week we introduced this passage by considering from this chapter lessons from the Lordship of Christ. We've sought to organize the chapter around the theme of the Lordship of Christ. And the reason we've done so is because we believe that that is the underlying theme of this chapter. It seems to me as I've thought more about the Gospel of John that the first 20 chapters are expressly written in order to save sinners. The last verse of the chapter 20 says, these are written, these signs that he's included in the gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in him. But the the last chapter, chapter 21, seems to be something of an addendum to the book, added perhaps by the Apostle John later for a particular reason. And the emphasis of this chapter, though it does have much in it that's evangelistic, the emphasis is now not so much on inviting sinners to come to Christ as on Christ's dealings with the apostles for the sake of the church that they're going to build and lead. The focus here is to his beloved sheep and those shepherds of his sheep that he has appointed to help them, to love them, to feed them, to shepherd them. And it's as though he has dealt with the gospel, he has told the sinner how to be saved, he's introduced him to Christ, and now there's a chapter for the church. There's a chapter to be uh, included here to address itself to Christ's provision for his people. And there's nothing more clear in this chapter than the Lord's distinct and abiding and deep regard for his beloved sheep and his commitment to provide for them all their everlasting needs. Which, by the way, as you recall, is an underlying theme of the entire gospel. Early on we read that the Lord says to those who come to him that any man who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. I came to do the will of my Father. And what is the will of my Father? That everyone that believes in me shall I raise up at the last day. I have lost nothing that you've given me. I've kept it. The Lord's Prayer in verse in chapter 17, I pray also for those that will believe on me through the word of the apostles, that they may be one, that they may be with me where I am. So the Lord has great commitment to his sheep. Chapter 10, he comes into the world to give life and to give it more abundantly to his sheep, to lay his life down for his sheep so that he may take his life again and them with him. And so John puts this crowning jewel on this wonderful gospel in this chapter and focuses our attention not so much on the saving person of Christ to the sinner, 
but on his saving purpose in his dealings with the shepherds of the flock and his focus on making provision for the church. When John heard him tell them to cast the net on the right side of the boat and they did it, John looked at Peter and said, It's the Lord. He recognized that this man who has done this thing is the Lord. He calls him the Lord because that's what he is. And that's around which I've built the organizing principle of this chapter. The Lord Jesus Christ. And we're trying to draw from this chapter some lessons from his Lordship. Last week we saw that he manifested his Lordship in this chapter in three ways at least. In the first place, He showed himself to be Lord in the fact that he is appearing to them raised from the dead. His power over death. He's Lord of the dead as well as the living. Then he showed his power over nature in not only telling them where the fish were, but guaranteeing they would catch plenty. And he showed his omniscience and his control over everything, even over our own hearts, in this demonstration of his power. And in a third place, he manifested his lordship in asserting his authority over all men. And that's seen in his authority to decide when people die. He says, what if I will that this disciple tarry till I come? Jesus decides when you die. And you're going to die when he wants you to die. And you're going to die not a minute later and not a minute before. He is preserving his people till the time of their death. Nothing can take them away until he's ready to bring them to himself. And those who are not his people, he's going to put you to death someday. It may be today, but he's appointed a day in which you'll die. And he's the one that decides it. You don't. You need to beware. We concluded how you treat the one who has your breath in his hands, who is sovereign over your life, who determines the exit as well as the entrance of all his creation out of and into this world. He has authority over death, over nature, and over all mankind. He's the Lord, and he manifested it in this chapter in a superior way. But this morning, in continuing to meditate on this chapter of the Scripture, I want us in the second place, having looked at the manifestation of his Lordship, to consider a bit more briefly the saving purpose of his lordship the saving purpose of his lordship now what Jesus is doing in this passage is revealing himself to the disciples as the Lord he's appearing in fact we believe this was another supernatural appearance the word indicates that he didn't just come walking along and they noticed over there that he had arrived he appears He manifests. He does an act of supernatural manifestation in his post-resurrection body. But in this chapter, one of the things that strikes us is the Lord's restoration of Simon Peter to his apostleship. You notice what he's doing. He repeats the question, Do you love me? Three times. Parallel to the three times Peter denied him. Remember what Peter had said back in Matthew chapter 26. He said, Lord, though all else forsake you, not I. 
I'll follow you to the death. He's looking around with disdain on these others. He has no trouble believing the Lord's prophecy about the rest of them. Oh, they may. I believe what you say, David, but I won't. I know my heart. You don't. Maybe they will. Never I. Remember? And he compared himself favorably to the others. His devotion, though the whole world might fail Christ, would never fail. The boastful Simon had much to learn. And remember how he fell three times denying the Lord Jesus. At the point of his crisis, Peter stinked out, chickened out, and backed out. So here in this text, the Lord asks him three times, Do you love me? And it's as though he's requiring of him to affirm his love in exact answer to his denying it. We might even draw from that that wonderful biblical principle about repentance. You have never repented from your sin until your repentance answers to your sin. Until the repentance equals the sin. Until the repentance deals with the sin as the sin was committed in all of its wretchedness, in all of its fullness, until you've confessed it the way God sees it and turned from it according to God's requirements, you've not repented. The repentance must equal the measure of the sin, or it's not true biblical repentance. And the Lord gives Peter graciously this opportunity just as three times he denied knowing him and didn't love him, but loved his own safety, now he gives him three opportunities to affirm that he does. And there's no question in my mind that Peter remembered it and saw the significance. Here's a coal of fires. Here's three questions. Answering to the coal of fire around which Peter denied him three times, and the Lord is now saying, Do you love me? Yes. I'm going to give you. A, I'm going to ask you again. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Now, without regarding the word play, and it's a significant word play, the Lord is at least doing something with Peter. And then, in verse 19, He says to him, "Having concluded this interview, follow me." Now, this was not, I believe, a, an essential call to discipleship, but it was a call to apostleship. It was a call. Leave the nets again. Leave the fishing boat again. I'm restoring you to my special service. He is reinstating Simon Peter into his apostolic function. Peter, we believe, had lost his confidence that he belonged. And you should lose your confidence. The credibility of his apostleship was killed. And you see, you've got to understand another aspect of repentance. Once you've sinned publicly... There's more to be put right than this, just your own heart. You have a credible credibility problem. There are others who will not follow you in the future because they remember what you did. There are others who've lost confidence in your strongest assertions of affirmation of faith. And when you've blown it publicly, you have to put it right publicly. That's the difference between certain kinds of sins. In God's eyes, sin is sin, and all sin kills. But some sin carries with it a heavier burden of restitution than other sin. You sin in secret, you may well be able to get right with God in secret. You sin in public, you have to deal with the people that saw it. 
You have to do something to restore the credibility and the trust. As we've said in this pulpit many times, you may secure my forgiveness, but have yet not secured my trust. You may have my affection and love, but you have to earn my trust and my confidence. You must teach this to your children. Just saying I'm sorry sometimes isn't enough. It may well be that God in his mercy will forgive a sinner for a humble act of confession and penitence before him on his knees. Lord, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? It will not be, though, that you'll be able to be reinstated among men unless you're willing to do what it takes to re-earn their trust. And in this lazy, self-serving generation where men want to cheap out they have lots of Bible verses they can grab as an excuse of a cheap restoration. And they're ready with those texts. But the passages that require restitution, restoration, the regaining and the earning of confidence, they don't notice quite so readily. So the Apostle Paul said, We strive to have a conscience void of offense before God and man. Why? Because both are vital to true religion. And here is Simon Peter who, whether or not his heart is all straight from his denial, still has a credibility problem. And he needs to know whether the Lord will trust him again with his apostleship. And he does. He restores him to his work and his function. It's a gracious restoration. Now you say, well, now what does this have to do with the sermon? Well, it has everything to do with the sermon. The saving purpose of Christ's lordship is seen in his treatment of Peter. He singles out Simon Peter in this text. Why? I submit not because Peter was going to become the head of Christ's church. Christ is the head of Christ's church. Not because Peter was going to be the most righteous of all the apostles. Not so nowhere in scripture is that intimated. Not because Peter was going to be succeeded through the generations by other Simon Peters in a perpetual apostleship. No, there's not any indication in all the Bible of such a thing. That's pure tradition. And it's wrought much havoc in the world. No, he is not intending to elevate Peter as head of the apostles in some perpetual righteous sense. But he is singling him out as a strategic cog in the wheel of his purposes for the church. Peter is the one that is going to preach on the day of Pentecost to 5,000 men from all kinds of nations under heaven uh, who are Jewish men, and he's going to preach the gospel to them, and they're going to be saved, and they're going to uh, constitute the first church of Christ in the world in Jerusalem. And from that church, the gospel's going to go out through all the civilized world, and people are going to hear it preached. To Peter, Christ gave the keys of the kingdom of heaven to use in his preaching on the day of Pentecost and to Cornelius' household, to open the door of heaven through the gospel to the Jew and to the Gentile. And in his preaching and in the preaching of all the apostles and in all the church subsequent to them, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are in their hands when they preach the gospel of Christ. So the Lord Jesus, upon the confession of Peter, when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, 
all who make such confession have built their house on a solid rock. And that's what the Lord is doing. But here he singles out Peter because he has a work for Simon Peter and with him the other apostles to establish his church. He restored Peter to the commission of the apostles. In chapter 20, verse 21, he said, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. It is possible that Peter was not in that meeting. But whether he was or not, here is a specific, special designation of Peter to make it clear to Peter and to the others that Peter is one of the apostles, is to be included in this vital ministry of the foundation stones of the church. It is his love for the church that drives the Lord Jesus to do this for Peter. It is vital in the history of the church that Simon Peter be restored to his apostleship. It is vital to the purposes of Christ that this man fulfill his commission and do his work and finish his work so the Lord comes to restore him. Peter had faith, but his faith was not mature. It was not as settled as Peter had thought. He has lost his confidence. The Lord must restore his confidence. You see him restoring Peter as an example of his mercy and grace. The Lord didn't have to let him back in. Would you? Somebody do that to you, you're going to trust him with a bankroll again soon? The Lord didn't have to do that. Now, I'm not suggesting to you for one minute, because it would violate every principle of Scripture, I'm not suggesting for one minute that Christ established Peter as an apostle without regard to a thorough repentant heart. That was plain and obvious, and as it grew, it was obvious to everyone. I'm not, this was not some cheap restoration. The Lord knew his heart. And the Lord restored him righteously. But it was a gracious and merciful thing he did. It gives great hope for us who have blown it. For us who failed. The Lord does not shut us off automatically. He may not re-include us. He again may. It's a merciful thing. And he's willing to do so. In many cases he does so. And he does so with Peter. But he also restored him because he has a purpose for his bride, the church. He intends to save a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and he's establishing a sound apostleship in order to be able to do it. To do it. Now, you remember chapters 14 through 16? What a sleepy morning it is as I watch your children. You remember chapters 14 through 16, where the Lord told the apostles, I'm going to leave and you're going to be sad? You're going to be downcast? I want to tell you what's going to happen. I want to prepare you for that time when I'm departing. And what did he teach them for three chapters in order to support them and prepare them for their work in the church? He taught them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. I'm leaving, but I'm going to come again. And I'm going to come in my spirit. I'm going to be with you. I'll not leave you orphans. I will come to you. I'll send another paraclete, one to stand alongside in the closest uh, union and proximity and support of you for your comfort and your health. Don't despair, though you'll not see me. I'll be with you, and he will be in you, and he will lead you into all truth. There are a lot of things I'd like to teach you now, but you can't bear them. But when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, 
He'll lead you into all truth. He will bring to your remembrance all the things I taught you, and he'll teach you about things to come. He prepared these men for a dark hour. This night all will forsake me and leave me alone, but I'm not alone. My Father is with me. In this world you shall have tribulation. He warned them. He told them. He predicted it. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Now, why did the Lord spend so much time, as John records it, to prepare these men and the church for those dreaded things that were going to come? Because he loves us. He has a purpose for us. He's very careful to prepare his people for the future. The Lord would get more of a following if he would leave out the part about tribulation, persecution. Now, he wouldn't keep the following because as soon as tribulation comes, they'll get so disoriented and discouraged and disheartened, they'll say, he never predicted this, and they'll quit. So his promise of what's going to happen and the toughness of the road, when he says, if a man starts to build the tower, he doesn't build it without first sitting down to count the cost to see if he's able to finish it. So if anybody wants to be my disciple, you better figure out ahead of time what it's going to cost you. Don't be shocked. Any man that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you want to avoid that, then you're avoiding me. If you want me, you're going to get that. He does all of that. It sounds very difficult to our ears. We'd rather not hear it, but he does it for our good so that when it comes, we'll be able to endure it. Even we who've heard this over and over again forget it, don't we? And we still are nigh on to losing our faith every time something goes wrong. We have this built-in assumption that now that I'm a Christian, nothing's going to go wrong anymore. And about that time, something goes wrong. And we're tempted to think, how can this be love? How can the Lord be real? How can this work? This can't be true. I quit. And this generation is peculiarly vulnerable to that kind of temptation. Because we've been taught that you stick it in the microwave and you get it in two minutes. Fully cooked. And if it takes longer than that, send the thing back for repairs. You stick it in the VCR and instant movie, instant pleasure. We live like that. We deal with God like that. We assume that if we don't get what we want right now, then God's messed up or everybody else is messed up and we don't like it. And so we become real vulnerable to the temptation of the devil when he says, Listen, if he really is the Son of God, why doesn't he come down off the cross? Surely it was never God's will for you people to endure such suffering and for Messiah to suffer and for this to be the lot of the church. If he's really your Savior, how come you got these problems with your car, your kids, your wife or husband, your job, your boss, your income? Why is your life such a mess if Jesus really is a Savior? Didn't you ask him to take care of you and straighten you out? Why did he let this disaster happen? Why did he let people mistreat you? Well, he did love us. And he said, these are things that are going to be a part of your life. I'm telling you ahead of time so that when it happens, you'll be able to handle it. Don't be surprised. Men are going to persecute you and hate you. They're going to speak all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. The world's going to be a tough place in which to live. In this world, you're going to have trouble. It's going to be part of your life every day in this world. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. He prepares the church. That's what he's doing here. He's restoring Peter because he has plans for his church. And he commissions these apostles. 
I've sent you the way the Father has sent me. And he commissions Peter and he makes it clear to him. Here's what I want you to do. Feed my lambs. Oversee as a faithful shepherd my sheep. Feed my sheep. He zeroes in on the shepherding ministry of the apostles because of his love for those sheep. He goes to this trouble in this post-resurrection appearance in order to provide for your faith. Dear brethren, this morning you are the beneficiaries of this kind of provision from Christ. You have the scriptures of the apostles. You take them for granted. You've grown up with them, many of you. You hear things taught in your ears that they had not yet learned when Jesus appeared this day on the Sea of Galilee to them. You hear them in Sunday school. You children are growing up being filled with data that some of your parents never heard of till they were in their adulthood. You daddies have the great privilege of providing this generation that which you never had. So that there's a possibility in 20 years of having a whole generation of 30-year-old young men and women who have been steeped in the principles of Scripture and really will be able to stand as lights in this world and salt in this world who doesn't even know that there is a Bible. And if you fail, Father, and it is your primary duty, if you fail, you'll weep later. And you'll be greatly remorseful that you didn't hear these warnings. The Lord Jesus cares for his sheep. This whole chapter is saturated. It bleeds with the love of Christ for us, his sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. He's going to build his church with living stones. Through them he will light and salt the earth. And he's going to exercise all his power to preserve his elect and to present his precious bride spotless before him we may get something of the significance of this miracle. I wasn't going to preach it this morning, but I want to tell you what I think it is. you remember the other account of the drought of fishes in the, in the synoptic gospels? When they were, Christ was in the boat with them, and he, they cast the net on the other side, and they caught a great drought of fishes, and it was so great that the net broke, and a lot of the fish got away. you remember that account? Similar miracle, but very different circumstances. In that one, it was before his death and resurrection. In that one, he was in the boat. This one, he's on the shore after his resurrection. In that one, the net broke and fish got away. In this one, it didn't. In that one, it was a great multitude of fishes. In this one, it is a specific number, 153 fish. Not a small, tiny little thing, though. It is so big and heavy, they can't even get the net in. But even though it's that heavy, the net never breaks. What is the significance? I think the essential significance of the passage is the Lord is showing the difference between this miracle and the other. The other is the picture of the church in this world and its militant gospel ministry gathering under its wing multitudes of people professing Christ, but many of whom who before it's over will think out and, and apostatize and fall. The net will break. The church is not going to be pure and perfect in this world. In the middle of this world, many professors Many false prophets, many who are in the, in the realm of the church will be lost. But the gospel net will sweep the whole world and a great multitude will come professing Christ.
But in this passage in John 21, it's different. He loses none. And they bring all 153 of them safely in an unbroken net to Jesus on the shore. That's the picture of the church triumphant, the true church, the, the church of the elect, carefully singled out to the, to the individual, 153. In fact, one of the church fathers had done some research, and what he had read, he came to the conclusion that there were 153 known species of fish in that part of the world at that time. And the significance is probably, and I think it's a very sound uh, assessment, that the picture here is that from every tongue and tribe and nation, from every species of mankind, Christ is going to gather his elect and none of them are going to be lost. And the true church will not have any tatters in it. And when it's presented to him in glory, where, he, where it's going to enter into his feast that he's prepared for it, it's all going to be intact in perfect harmony and perfect unity and everything he planned to save, he will have saved. I didn't say all that to cause a debate, but to show you that this is a picture of Christ's regard and preparation for saving his church and presenting her without spot and blemish before him in love and heaven. And may we say this, the whole world, though unwillingly, today serves the plan of God and the purposes of Christ to deliver his people from this present evil age. Everything that's happening in this world today is serving, though unwittingly and unwillingly, Christ's purposes for his church. Everything is working together for good to them who love God. Who's working everything together for good? It's not just falling into place sort of accidentally. It's not that these people are born with a silver spoon of luck in their mouth. It's that Christ, the sovereign of nature, the sovereign of death and life, the sovereign of all men, is working it all together for good. What is the good that he's working it together for? Well, the ultimate good, the saving good, those whom he foreknew, them he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those who whom he predestinated, those he also called, and them he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. All that saving good, Christ is working all things together to safely and securely produce it. And that's included in this passage. Not only are the devices of Satan and wicked men failing to frustrate Jesus. They are aiding his holy will. It's not as though they're sort of doing a bunch of stuff that's a threat to him, but ultimately he'll find a way around it. No, they are actually serving his purposes. Let me suggest one. All the opponents of Christ's saving work in his church, all the things that want to keep you from hearing what the gospel is that's preached in this pulpit, all the opponents of your own soul that are luring you away from here out back into where you were before you came. All the persecution. All the lure of the world. All of the devil's wiles. All of that is working against you. And yet God uses that stuff to separate the wheat from the chaff. It's that stuff that determines who's real and who's not. 
Many will come to not endure sound doctrine, but they will find them teachers to tickle their itching, lustful ears. So Christ uses the false prophet to expose the false believer. God provides an alternative for you. You don't want to stay with the Bible? There are options available, aplenty in this world. You don't want to suffer persecution? You can be of some sort of Christian without it in this world. You don't want to have to pay for the truth and to suffer for the truth and not to compromise? Are there a few sins you want to keep in your heart while you serve Christ? There are plenty of churches available that will accommodate you, my dear friend. And is that outside God's control? No, I believe God has provided that thing in order to give people an opportunity to leave if they will. And it exposes the truth of our commitment. The Lord is perfecting the church. And he has lots of ways to do it. He's in control. He separates the wheat from the chaff and what's remaining will be a shining light as the stars in heaven purified as having come through the fire. Men are his instruments to feed and tend his flock. Some of you are in this church because God brought you to the end of your work, your, your, work, your rope. You came here as a last resort. Who drove, who drove you here? It wasn't that Chevy or Ford, it was the Lord. Who brought you to that place where you were even willing to hear the stuff we preach that's not very popular in this generation? Who made you want to be around a, a people like us? Well, you tried the rest. You tried the world and its pleasure, and it frustrated you, and your life was a shambles. And you said, maybe this biblical stuff works. If it doesn't, I don't know what else I'll do. I'll listen in. And before you knew it, it became true to your heart. The Lord Jesus has used all sorts of instruments to bring you to feed, to get you to the trough. And when those men whom the Lord has raised up to feed you do it faithfully, beware how you treat them. The Lord Jesus is setting out a man here and other men to feed his flock because he plans to save his flock through the instrumentality of fleshy men. Inconsistent men, sinful men, men who are going to make mistakes. Their pattern of their life will be an example to the believer, but they're going to blow it from time to time in lots of different ways. And it's those kinds of feet of clay that Christ has been pleased to deposit into the treasure of the gospel. So that whatever happens good out of their ministry will have to give glory to God and not to them. You'll not be able to say, well, these men are extra special. They're special in that God has chosen them. They're special in that they bear a treasure. How beautiful are the feet of them that bear glad tidings. However, they're not special in that they had some intrinsic righteousness or that they stood above other men in worth and that they are somehow the secret to your faith. No, you'll give the glory to God. But if they're faithful to the gospel, beware how you treat them. Whatever shape they're in, if Christ called them, and if they're feeding his flock with his food, you beware how you esteem them and how you treat them. Because he will consider it as treatment of him. 
Inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. So you beware. The Lord raises up instruments in order to save the world. And that's what he's doing. But, I want to spend the minutes that remain to us this morning concentrating on the third aspect of this meditation. We've seen the manifestation of his lordship and something of the saving purpose of this lordship as it reverberates through his heart. But now in the third place, note with me the requirements for his service. A feature of this chapter is serving him. He's calling Peter to follow him and serve him. Let's look at the requirements for that service. You want to serve Christ? There are requirements. Now this particular message focuses upon the requirements of those who are, what shall we call them, um, professionals in the ministry. I hate the sound of that. Uh called of God to special Christian service I'm not so fond of that either but men whose vocation in life who are who gain their monetary support in order to feed their tummies and their families is derived from the ministry of the gospel men whose full time employment is for the gospel and they live of the gospel because they spend their days preparing it learning it and preaching it that's what this is focusing upon the ministry of the gospel, the men of God who do it. Peter, feed my sheep, follow me. However, let me say that it applies the principles here to every disciple of Christ. Everything I'm about to say that applies specifically in this passage to the ministers of the gospel, in principle, applies to every one of you in this place. Now listen to the first one, and it's as far as we'll be able to get today. The first requirement for the service of Jesus Christ the Lord, is a proper biblical self-assessment. A proper biblical self-assessment. In other words, humility. That's what that word means. A proper biblical self-assessment. Turn quickly to Romans chapter 12 to see where we get the idea. In Romans 12, verse 3, the apostle is writing to the church at Rome, and he is addressing everyone there in this church, in verse 3 of chapter 12. He is sensitive to the fact that whatever he is as an apostle, he is by the grace of God. He knows that he's an apostle. He knows that he has authority in the church of Christ. He knows that he's singled out with a special stewardship. He knows that he has a message that's unique to the world and that if any deny what he preaches, they'll be cut off from Christ, even angels. He has high confidence in his calling. But he's also very keenly sensitive to the fact that whatever he is in apostleship, and as he says, not a whit behind the chiefest of the apostles, it's all grace. I am what I am by the grace of God. And in verse 3 he says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But, on the other side, so to think as to think soberly. And the word literally means 
sanely, with rationale, rationality. Not insanely, out of pocket, out of balance, thinking of yourself way out of the realm of reality, but assess yourself properly. A proper biblical self-assessment. Not underrating yourself, but certainly not overrating yourself. Not to think more highly than you ought to think, but to think exactly as you ought to think of yourself. Sanely, soberly. I beseech you, every one of you in this church, think of yourself the way you ought to think of yourself. Never more highly than you ought. Be sober in your judgment, as God has dealt the measure of faith. Now, having read that, refer back to Simon Peter's experience. The Lord Jesus has to do something with Peter, especially his self-assessment. Is that not the case? We have two problems with Peter. First of all, Peter has had a very high self-assessment. He did not believe the Lord's assessment of him. He assumed his own self-assessment was correct. And it was much too high. I'll never forsake you. Now that's just moments before he utterly forsook him. And multiplied it three times. How wrong can a guy be about himself? Peter must learn with thorough scrutiny who he really is what true zeal is and what false zeal is. Christ's work requires that its servants know themselves and know their capacities so that they will not shrink back when the test comes. If you overrate yourself, you will fail in the ministry of Christ. Let you make sure when you serve Christ that you don't assess yourself too high. Now, this is a hard and painful test and trial, but it's not one that's in vain. The Lord has to get through to Peter, who has not yet learned how deeply the love of Christ must be ingrained in his heart. In order for this man to serve Christ, he must understand how deeply he loves the Lord. And he must have a proper assessment of his affections and zeal. He better know his limits. And he better know his love for Christ. Because there are going to be struggles innumerable. Difficulties virtually insurmountable as a result of this man's apostleship. So let's find out before we start who you really are, Peter. How much do you really love me? You see that? picture here. The Lord is leading him through something even perhaps of a labyrinth of self-assessment. He's going to drag him through the painful deep-rooted assessment of self. Dear brethren and friends, let me ask you, when is the last time you took some time off and just thought through with your Bible open the book of Proverbs, the Sermon on the Mount, the Epistles, the Psalms, maybe the biographies of Scripture in the Kings, and really assessed, who are you? How much do I really love the Lord Jesus? When's the last time you took stock of the way you use your time? How much TV you watch? Wrote down a list and compared it. When's the last time you took a long walk and just meditated for a bit on who you really are? 
Not just jump into the first conclusion, I'm the worst thing that ever lived. That's not proper biblical self-assessment. It's usually a foolhardy, cheap way of getting coming to a, a decision about yourself. In most cases, you're underrating. When's the last time you really tried to be honest about yourself before God with your Bible? When have you asked some other proven and trusted and wise Christian men or women to assess you from their vantage point? Because that's part of the process. But Peter's not left to go off by himself in the corner over here. He has to answer the Lord in front of some other people. Pretty tough trial. You want to go through that? You must go through that at some point in some way if you're going to serve Christ. Count the cost. True biblical humility, proper self-assessment. Now, we're not suggesting here that self-denigrating, debilitating absence of purpose and confidence and holy ambition, which is typical of our age. Nowhere in the Bible are men and women told to think nothing of yourself, to make no plans. You're useless to anybody. If you ever get to do anything for God, it'll just be an accident. That is not biblical. That is not a proper biblical self-assessment. In fact, one of the crying needs of this generation is to men and women sitting in the pews of God's church who have enough self-confidence to stand up and be heard for their convictions. Biblical humility does not mean a sheepish withdrawal Staying to yourself, afraid to be involved in relationships because you're assuming you're going to blow it if you do. Never say a word, never contradict anything anybody says, never inject your own opinion into a conversation. Just hide and hope you make it to heaven. That would be one of the most disastrous things a church could develop in its psyche in this generation. We're not here to hide, we're here to preach, we're here to minister, we're here to be light, not to hide it under a bushel. So we're not saying that this proper self-assessment is this typical self-denigrating, debilitating absence of purpose and confidence and complete void of any holy ambition that so typifies our age. We're talking about the well-informed, experiential awareness of one's true self in the presence of God and his fellow man. Thought through. Well-informed, true self-awareness. That's what we mean. Well, how do we get to it? Well, it involves several things. First of all, a proper biblical self-assessment involves a recognition of our helplessness without Christ. The first thing you have to learn if you're going to follow Jesus Christ is that you can't follow him by yourself. You cannot meet the standards. You cannot live up to it. You see, I just said that we have a generation that tends to debilitate itself with self-denigration. It has no self-esteem. And now I'm saying that you shouldn't have any self-esteem. But which one do I mean? Am I confusing the issue? Double talk? No, here's what I mean. You can never come to true biblical holy ambition and true biblical self-esteem until you first come to seeing yourself as nothing before Christ. There must be the process of holy self-abhorrence first before there can be holy self-esteem. There is self-esteem. There is such a thing as personal confidence 
with men and with God. Oh, how we need confidence with God on our knees. So we're not ashamed or afraid to ask. But the reason many of us don't have it is because we have not yet first gone deep enough in this first principle of humility. We must recognize our helplessness without Christ. Verses 3 through 5 of our chapter 21 of John. They're going fishing. They toil all night. They take nothing. And Jesus in his brilliance says, Got any fish? Hey, caught anything? Got anything to eat? Why does it? He knows they don't have anything. It's almost like the Lord in the Garden of Eden. Adam, where are you? Adam has never gone anywhere God didn't know about. Why is God asking that question? Because Adam has to come to grips with where he is. When some skip out of church and don't come to their appointed, committed place of worship. Do they know where they are? It's the righteous responsibility of their fellows in the congregation to chase them down and find out if they know where they were. And not leave it up just to the pastors. Adam, where are you? Jesus says, you catch anything? I mean, he knew where the fish were. He was about to tell them where they were. He knew there weren't any in that net. Why does he ask? He wants these men to say it. No. And I have a feeling there was a little doubt in the tone. And that's all you see. No. I mean, it's sort of an abrupt answer, isn't it? No. Have you ever seen that? when you, We went fishing a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we were out at the uh, at, uh, lake up here. and uh, We are walking by their empty poles and stringers on our bodies and we looked down at these other fellows fishing and we said, well, did you get anything yet? And that look they gave us was one of those please don't bother me with such a question. Who do you think you are? Well, we were glad for a moment until they dashed it when they said, what about you? And the two that we had caught we would not have called fish so we said nothing. Well, the Lord asked and he makes them say no. He makes them put into their mouth the fact that professional fishermen all night long didn't catch a single thing. Brother, we're talking about a net. This isn't a hook and bait. I mean, you can grab something in a net. Nothing. The Lord would love to get you to see that. In all your striving in your life to get it straight and to get happy and to make things work your way, what have you caught yet? Do you hear him asking that question? You've been going fishing without him. What have you got to show for your life? For the most part, as Romans 6 says, things you're now ashamed of. There's not a person in this place that I know, not a grown-up at least, the kids are spared so far from this kind of pain. It's a wonderful time to be a child, brethren. Children are sinners that need a Savior. But there's something they haven't had to experience, most of them yet. A lifetime of regret. Don't grow them up too fast. Let them have a few years being children. Don't impose on them your bitterness and your resentment and your regrets just yet. They have plenty of time to produce their own. 
But there's not an adult that's a member of this church that I know that doesn't think of the past often with grief and pain. And wish you could redo some of it. Sometimes look back over it and say, you wish you could redo all of it. And the Spurgeon was known to say, sometimes he fancies that he could live his life over again and do it better, and he realizes that if he was given another chance, he'd double the wrong. He said, if I just knew what I knew now, I could live right now. If he, you'd take that knowledge and you'd, you'd just have a better way of sinning. It wasn't because you didn't know, it's because you had a bad heart. And the Lord wants us to assess that. Answer me. What have you got from the way you've been living? What have you got? Be honest. Don't answer me. Answer Christ. What do you have to show for your life? Oh, I have my family. For how long? Then what? Well, I got a job. For how long? And then what? What'd your job get you? Work like a dog for my pay. The frustration of a generation of people who look at the lucky old son who just rolls around heaven all day and they'd love to do that because work didn't make them happy. What have you got with your life? you have a peace of conscience when you sleep at night? you happy in Christ? Do you go to bed and put your head on your pillow and smile at it and say, Lord, good night? I'll see you in the morning. Take care of me. Can you pray what my grandfather taught us to pray when we were little bitty toddlers? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray thee, Lord, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to take. And we could close our eyes at the end of that prayer and go sound asleep. Never was I scared. I just gave my soul to the Lord every night. Loved those times with my granddaddy because I always had to go to bed with him just so I'd go to sleep. The Lord asks you a question. Do you have meat for your soul? from the way you've been living? Have you satisfied your soul with what you've been doing with your life? And the first thing you must learn if you're going to follow Christ and know Christ and reap the benefits of Christ is no. On my own, I have blown it. Jesus had said in the 15th chapter of this gospel, without me, you can do nothing. Did you know that when I was a young man, that verse troubled me? I didn't let it trouble me too much because I had the blessed faithfulness of a pastor who had drilled into my conscience that I must believe every word of the Bible and submit to it. But something in me didn't want to believe part of that verse. Oh, surely he doesn't mean nothing. Read your Bible. He gives them breath. And they come to life. He takes their breath away. They perish. Everything comes from the Lord. Without him, you can do... No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. You say, no, Jesus isn't that big. Yes, he is. You can do nothing without Jesus. There are many who have developed a theology over the especially recent years of Christian history called the deeper life, or in some words, the exchanged life. And one of the proponents of that verbiage was a wonderful missionary to China who opened the door to missions in China, Hudson Taylor. 
And he had an experience at one time in his missionary career. And the man went through all sorts of difficulties and sufferings. And I'm not promoting everything he would have done. But he had a high view of God's sufficiency. And he had a high, a deep faith. And he forsook all and went to the mission field and went to China. There were no missionaries in China. There was no gospel in China. There were no churches in China. He, start, he started. And he got off the boat. I believe it was Shanghai. And he looked at all this teeming multitude. And he said it was just overwhelming. Where do you start? And first he had to learn the language. And had to get the Bible into the language. And that kind of... Well, Hudson Taylor came to the end of himself through one of those frustrating periods of missionary work. And he had been working. There was nobody on the mission field that I've ever read about that was more of a worker than Hudson Taylor. Organized, diligent, never wasted a moment, up before dawn, out in bed late at night, didn't sleep very much, just worked. He produced so much with his life. And yet one day there was nothing. No fruit, no heart, no nothing. And he went back to London and he was wondering about stopping his work. And he came to the utter end of himself. And he decided one day, he said, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry. I've given all I can give and I can't do anything. I can't make anything happen in your kingdom. I'm going to let you take it. And he sort of made a personal transaction in his own mind. Now, what he did and what he experienced, which was genuine, has been developed into a theology that goes way beyond Scripture. The theology of spiritual irresponsibility. But Hudson Taylor's experience... His experience is needed. Not some sort of dramatic experience that we can write a biography about. Let's spare ourselves. But at least the experience of coming to grips to some degree with the fact of this principle that without the Lord Jesus your life is nothing and void and can accomplish nothing. You've got to come to that. You have never come to a proper biblical self-assessment until you come from the heart to know Unless the Lord gives the strength, unless the Lord smiles upon your labor, you can do nothing. It is interesting, isn't it, that in the same generation in which men killed themselves out of frustration and despair and self-denigration, they also stick their chest out in self-independence. And you can't tell them anything. They don't have any. They don't want to hear anything. They want to talk to you. They want to tell you. They don't want to listen. Mr. Big. And they strut around. Their life is a shambles and they strut around as though there's success in everything they do. I heard a banker this week on the radio, National Public Radio, or one of these big news things, and he was they were interviewing him. An executive, white collar, I mean he was the CEO of this bank, and they laid him off. And he was saying, You know, it's funny how things have changed. Nobody answers my phone calls now. Nobody returns my calls. You know, you wonder how many calls he never returned when he was sitting in the chair. He assessed his calls based on the validity of the incoming call. What's it going to do to the investment of the bank? What's it going to help with it? And if he didn't assume this guy was worth worrying with, he didn't. Now he's in that position, and he was very humble by it. He had never known what the other half lived like. Some of you need to learn what the other half lives like. And that's why God often puts you in a basket by yourself and leaves you alone. You want to live by yourself? You want to live by your rules? You want to set the rules? Have at it. You'll come back someday wondering where you went wrong. Well, the first place you went wrong is when you refused to confess from the heart 
and to recognize in the heart that without the Lord Jesus you can do nothing. A proper biblical self-assessment begins with and necessitates this experiential awareness that you can't achieve anything. Now let me speak to two things. First, you who are not Christians. And I didn't say you who don't think you're Christians. You may think you're a Christian. I want to speak to you who may deceive yourself. You cannot make yourself a Christian by believing and repenting. You cannot become a Christian without them. You see, what I mean is, the twist here, the catch is, you don't get to decide when your heart's going to change. You can't change your heart. That's why you hardly believe what I'm preaching. Your heart's blind to truth. It doesn't make sense to you. You have an unregenerate heart. You're not discerning spiritually. You're discerning carnally the way you discern everything. And the gospel is foolishness to you. You believe you're in control. You believe that Jesus is standing in the wings waiting for your next directive. You believe that Christ will come after you've gone to Him. You believe that He somehow is waiting for you to take the righteous step that changes everything. Not so. You won't come until He brings you. You can't repent until He gives you repentance. You can't believe until he imparts faith. Now, did I say you're not supposed to believe? No, I didn't say that. What I said is the power is not in you. And the grace does not start with you. That's why this church stands firmly behind the principles of the Bible that God is sovereign in saving sinners. From the first to the last, we will not allow you to inject another principle in this pulpit. We might give room for all sorts of disagreements over all sorts of things, but not this. The heart of the gospel is God saves sinners when and how He pleases. Now what does that mean at the point of our sermon? It means that you can't decide when you're going to come to Christ. You mustn't try to. All you're given in the gospel is to come right now. Humbly. Cast upon the mercy of Christ and pray He'll have mercy and save you. You're not in the driver's seat. You better hope He returns your call. You're not the CEO of your soul. He is. And He's called you to come now and to turn now. And to humble your mighty independent self now. You're dealing with the Lord God. Who said it three weeks in a row. You say, Pastor, you did the same thing last week. You did it the week before. I'm still preaching to the same audience. We sit back in our mighty independence and we evaluate the gospel. We check out Christians to see if they're worthy of our joining. We look at the Bible to see how we prefer to understand. We judge God. Who do we think we are? The Bible says to us, we don't even have a right to question God. Who art thou, O man, 
who replies against God shall not the potter have authority over the clay to make one vessel unto honor and one to dishonor as he pleases? Who are you, O pot, to question the potter? You're nothing. You wouldn't be here if God hadn't made you be here. The dust out of which your life was formed wouldn't be here except God spoke it into existence. And you certainly will never ascend to heaven apart from the sovereign, awesome work of God in grace and His own power. I want to drive it home. Whatever area of your life you are undertaking without humble beseeching of God for wisdom and help, you are undertaking in vain. And it will fall through at the last. You build your whole life on the sand of your own imagination and the sand of your own preferences and the sand of your own sins. Your house will crumble someday. God will send a storm and He will tear it down. Only those who built their house on the dependence utterly on the rock of Christ will stand in the storm. You say, well, I've withstood all the storms so far, mister. How dare you tell me? I'm telling you that you can do nothing without Christ. And if you ever want to follow Him and know Him and have His blessing and serve Him, you've got to come to grips with that. I don't have time to go on, but I want to conclude with this one other statement. Everyone who's ever come to grips with this statement and everyone that's ever come to grips in the heart with this reality has found Christ to be utterly sufficient. See, not only can you do nothing without Him, you can do all things with Him. And you need to know that. That was my third point, but I jumped because I didn't want to stop with that one. You see, you've got to understand. You're sitting back with your spiritual chest out and your arms folded waiting on God to tell you something. Waiting on God to match up with your demands. You're doing it lots of ways. God's not in a position to listen to your dictates. He's never descended from the throne. He never will. You've never sat on it. And you never will. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and He'll exalt you in due time. You meet the requirements of God's Word. He'll bless you. He gives grace to the humble. But God resists the proud. Down and away with all our self-sufficiency. All our independence. All our refusal to listen to the counsel of biblical men. All our decision-making on our own. Out with it. And humble yourself under the recognition of your utter helplessness without Christ. He had to bring Peter to this before Peter could ever qualify for his service. He has to bring us to that. See, grace from God that doesn't produce serving God is false. But serving God without grace from God is fruitless. If you have grace from Christ, saving grace, you will be serving Him according to His Word, according to His rules. If you're serving Him apart from grace, though, on your own rules, in your own power. 
you'll produce nothing. You'll produce nothing but frustration. Without Christ, you can do nothing. Come to grips with that. Oh, I wish I could simply put upon our hearts a mantle of humility. I wish I could make it happen to mine. Ask God to make you humble, and he will. He gives grace to the humble. Lord, I want to be humble. Help my pride. Help my inhumility. Make me humble. Oh, it's going to hurt. You know what it's going to take, don't you? You're going to have to fail somewhere in wide open view of somebody. Most of you have already failed enough. You don't need to wait any longer and fail anymore. Just humble yourself. Recognize what the facts are and come before God and He'll lift you up. He'll bless you. Oh, sinner, what makes you tarry? It's your pride. You will not come to Christ that you may be saved. It's your pride. Humble yourself. And the Savior knows how to lift you up. Old church, remember that we'll never accomplish, nor have we ever accomplished, a thing that's good for the kingdom of Christ, apart from the grace and the power of Christ. Let's stay in that place and let's keep our hearts disciplined to remember that. Without Him, you can do nothing. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you that you have had enough compassion on us to teach us the painful lessons. We thank you that you've cared enough to hurt us and to smite our hard hearts and to break them. We remember your word, O oh Lord, in the prophet, when you said to this man, will I look even to him who is humble and of a contrite spirit. O oh Lord, our God, forgive us for presenting to you this facade, this brassy pride, this wall of self-defense, this arrogant self-sufficiency. Forgive it and slay it in us utterly. O oh Lord, thank you for our failures. Thank you for the times when we thought we had it in control and we fell flat on our faces. Thank you for the frustrations you've sent into our lives. Thank you for the inability we've had to get our way. Help us to understand why you made it that way so that we'd humble ourselves. Give to us, our Father, true, honest, deep heart, full view, self-assessment. And let us not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but be sane in our self-judgment. Oh, God, we pray for a heavy dose of true biblical humility to sweep over us. We pray for the sinner that's among us who still resists the, the entreaties of Christ. Oh, Lord, show that sinner that he or she cannot possibly live without you. Oh, God, be gracious and open the eye of the blind before it's too late and retrieve the wayward sinner and let this church know, and let us never depart from the knowledge 
that we don't stand on our own nor accomplish anything in our own, but only in the strength and virtue of our Lord Jesus. Help us, O Lord, always to live at that place of humble recognition of our worthlessness in ourselves and his worth in us. O God, hear us. Do that which this sermon could never accomplish. By your Holy Spirit, O God, do it for us. Help us and hear us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.